dispensing wisdom, inciting awesomeness, scaling joy. Welcome to the Mojo Studios podcast. It's time to turn down the deluge of distractions and put yourself in a mindset of receptivity and growth. Absorb, digest, apply, repeat. Dinner is served. Hey everybody, I'm happy to invite my friend John Rinker into the Mojo Studio family. Uh, he's been my friend for many years, 25 years I think, uh, back when I was working at Southern California College. It's 26 years, but that goes back to the year I graduated, which I knew you in my senior year, so it's like 27 I think. It's a All long right. time. <laughs> a long time. And like with many of my friendships lately, we lost touch for, for quite a while, for probably 15 years at least. I know that because of what I now know about what you've gone through in the last 15 years. Had no idea. Uh, Jonathan and I connect on many levels, but he's a musician, a fabulous bass player. And he was just reminding me, tell me about the, uh, the audition where we went. Uh, when I went to Southern California College, which is now Vanguard University, we were required to go to chapel every day. And there was a chapel band that would play some worship songs. And they held auditions. And me, not knowing anybody in California, and trying to get familiar with the school, auditioned on the bass to play in this, uh, what was called Prayer and Praise Band. And unfortunately, growing up in the East Coast, when I went to the West Coast, all the worship songs were completely different. And so Joe and the other judge, our good friend Chris, um, I asked them, can you play through the song once just so I can hear it? I'm not a trained musician. I play entirely by ear. So they played through the song, and then I had the chord chart, and I was actually able to play... I guess decently enough that I got selected to be on the band. So thank you for that, Joe. Absolutely. Joe had this cool office on the second floor in the Smith building with a big kick-ass Mac screen. And I, at that stage of my life, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And he kind of shared with me what he was doing, and it was, it was very interesting to me. So I would pop in whenever I was on the, at the Smith building. I would go upstairs and knock on the door and see if he was there and we would chat for a while yeah yeah so we, we formed a, a really cool bond a cool friendship uh and so much so that during those years when i was still single uh i had this harebrained idea that for my 30th birthday i would give myself the gift of skydiving but i didn't want to do it alone because i wanted someone to be a witness to this nuttiness that i was had inside of me so i asked some of my closest friends if they wanted to do it and they're like no joe you just go enjoy that on your own that's not for me <laughs> but jonathan however he said well that sounds cool i'll give it a try so one early early morning uh we got up and climbed in my 1969 dodge dart gts and we drove out to lake paris which was what was it about a, an hour drive maybe from where yeah. we were? Yeah, it's about an hour from Orange County. Yeah, it was before sunrise. We, we drive out there and we had signed up in advance, of course. And the idea was we would probably do the tandem jump where you just get oriented and then they harness a, an instructor on your back. You jump out together and they pull the ripcord. You just enjoy the ride. But what I didn't know until we got there is that there was a weight limit on going tandem. So we get in there and they weigh us in right away. And sure enough, I'm well, like six, seven, eight pounds above the limit for being uh, a tandem jumper. So they said, well, I, I like, what are my options, right? What am I supposed to do? And they said, well, 
you can do one of two things. One, you can come back in a month after you've lost enough weight, <laughs> or, or you can go through an all-day training where you learn how to jump solo, and your first jump will be solo. And there'll be instructors that jump out with you, but they're not harnessed to you uh, because the weight limit's higher on that. And I was like, John, are you willing to stick it with me all day long? I was on the edge. I was like, I don't know. And you're like, I'll pay for it because there was an additional cost to jump on your own. I figure if we're going to go skydiving, we're jumping out at 15,000 feet. It's not going to matter whether some guy's on my back or not. And we were sitting in this area waiting for the instructor to come. And some guy pulls up in a car and comes out. And he, I don't know how else to describe it. His leg was like, he only had half a leg. And he swung it out and out clicked this metal rod, which looked like a crutch because he had like one of those rubber stoppers on the bottom. And he starts, you know, kind of limping over to us. And Joe turned to me and said, like, uh, that better not be our instructor. And the guy came up, and he was our instructor. Yeah. And I don't know if you know this or remember this. I actually jumped out with that guy. And his first statement was, I didn't lose this skydiving. I lost it in the war or something like that. Like, it really yeah. doesn't matter what you lost it. <laughs> this is yeah. like, it's not That's a confidence cool. boost to be training yeah. for skydiving with a one-legged man. Yeah, what I remember too, John, is that he, he actually didn't give that information to us until like halfway through the first session. So we're all freaked out of our minds because the training basically was all the different ways you can die jumping out of an airplane. Yeah. It was like you could get run over by a train or get caught in the in the telephone wires or end up in some you know somebody's backyard. Yeah, was, and all I was thinking was this: our instructor lost his leg right skydiving. Finally, he tells us, "Oh, you may be wondering why I only have one leg." We're like, "Uh, yeah." He's like, "Oh, yeah, it was a motorcycle accident." Every break in our class, I'd go running. I'd, I'd put on every layer I had in the car, and I'd just go running up and down the roads trying to trying to lose some weight, right? Trying to sweat it out. And I'd, then I'd spend half an hour in the bathroom seeing if I could get it out that way. <laughs> and we'd weigh in throughout the day, and, and I would be losing a little bit of weight, but I'm thinking, I really had to lose, I think I had to lose six pounds to get down yeah, the weight. Yeah, six or seven pounds. And yeah, yeah. by the end of the day, you'd lost it. So we could have gone tandem, but we decided we had already gone through the training to go solo, so... Yeah, that's what we ended up doing. That's right. We were like jogging around in like a full sweatshirt, and it was probably ninety degrees outside. Right. I felt like I was a wrestler because I lost like I think I lost seven pounds in eight hours. We we're the last ride. Yeah. We we're the last thing to go up. And what I do remember is the video. So we hired a videographer to jump with us. And when I jump out of the plane, because I was about twice as big as both of the instructors that were on either side of me, so my acceleration was quicker at the beginning. And they're hanging on for dear life, like trying to hang on to my jumpsuit because I'm falling faster than them. So Jonathan will always be uh, one of my dearest friends just because we, we looked death in the face. Yeah. Well, to bring this up to present day, so like I said, I lost touch with Jonathan. I knew he was a creative guy. We had that in common. He's worked for ad agencies, um, did a lot of the same kind of work that I do, and um, but then just lost touch because life takes us different directions until John's name comes up in social media or something, and so I just sent him a message, hey, what's up? And to his credit, he didn't respond with a text or anything. He just picks up the phone. He calls me within seconds of me sending this message, and he goes, Oh, by the way, <laughs> here's where the story story takes a big turn. You're soliciting, I, I, I'm assuming, multiple people to do like a 30-second video of how we knew each other. And, and I, I wanted to do it, of course, because I have great memories and fond memories of Joe from my college years and even post-college when he loaned me that dart to drive around when I didn't have a car and I didn't have a job. Um, so I was willing to do it. I just couldn't because... I was quite literally in the hospital having brain surgery. And this is my fourth surgery to remove what's called an astrocytoma. Um, 
type of tumor. It's a fast-growing tumor. Um, I'm about to step into a clinical trial in the next week, which is an enzyme inhibitor called the paraparib and uh, a low dosage of chemotherapy for about six months to really knock it out. I had surgery. They removed most of the tumor, but they don't know what was left behind microscopically. So we'd like to knock that out with pharmacology. And last time I had surgery and post-operative care of chemo and radiation, I was tumor-free for about 10 years. And that's kind of my prayer and hope now. I had surgery 15 days ago, and here I am talking, right? So that's proof that modern medicine works. Yeah. I'm, I'm super glad it's 2021, not 1921. In 1921, modern surgery was just forming as a practice by a guy named Harvey Cushing. Because back then, they were like opening cadavers up, like, ooh, what's this thing? Oh, that's a heart? Okay. Oh, I have a live patient. They would just move the dead body off and use the same instruments unwashed, unlike live patients. Most people didn't die from blood loss. They died from infection from the instruments that the surgeons were using. That didn't happen to me. Here I am. If you just tuned in or you missed this earlier, John said this is his fourth brain surgery. Imagine my surprise, and probably yours too, who are tuned in, that, you know, here's my buddy, creative guy, he's got a family, he's got kids, and I say, hey, what's up? And he sends me this picture of him basically laid out in a hospital room saying, oh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just in post-op from my fourth brain surgery. What? So tell us a little bit, John, how, how did this even start, the, the brain surgery journey? Where, where, where were you in your life, and, then, and how did you even respond to that when the news comes to you? About 15 years ago, I was out with a friend, and I was having what are called auras or mini seizures. They're precursors to seizures. It's your body saying, hey, you're about to have a seizure, like settle down or whatever you're doing. So I was having one of those. I didn't know what it was. Um, and when, it, my eyes, when I opened my eyes, I was in a hospital room. I had had a grand mal seizure. My buddy thought I died. He called an ambulance. They picked me up. They brought me back. And they said, you had a grand mal seizure. And based on a CAT scan, you have a large inflammation on the right frontal cortex of your brain. The neurologist is going to come in and tell you what, it, what, we're, what it's about. He came in. And honestly, this guy set the tone for how I responded. Because just cool and collected, he said, I'm 85% sure what you have is benign. The position for having a tumor, the position is really good because it's on the surface of your cortex. So if we open up, we can easily remove it. That's kind of how he said it. it. was like, no, he goes, I do one of these surgeries a week. It's really routine for me and my colleagues. Why don't you come to my office on Monday? We'll, we'll discuss the results of your MRI and let you know how we want to proceed. Well, mm -hmm. given it was my first time with a brain surgery, I decided to get a second opinion. And I went up to UCLA where a friend knew an ear, nose, and throat specialist who referred me into the neurosurgical team at UCLA. So I got an appointment with a guy named Timothy Clausey, who is the head of neuro-oncology at UCLA. And I met with Daniel Kelly, who was my surgeon. And he just, he was so mild-mannered and just, hey, this, the odds are in your favor to have this surgery. Less than 1% chance of anything happening. Again, he's like, I do, I do two or three of these surgeries a week. It's routine. Based on what I'm seeing on this scan, I'm confident I can remove the bulk of the tumor. So three weeks later, I had the surgery. And I was out of the hospital after three days. I was up and walking. I was begging them to get out of the hospital because 
if you've ever been in the hospital and you want to rest and sleep, it's not the place to be. So right. you're poking and prodding, hey, we need a blood test. We need to test your sugar. We need this. And, and so, you know, my luxury, luxurious two-bedroom suite separated <laughs> by a curtain. I was in the seizure ward, and the guy next to me was in a tray bed. So he was in a bed where he couldn't get out. And that's all he wanted to do. So the whole night he was basically urinating himself and going to the bathroom in his bed. So the nurses would have to allow him to get up. So the last place I wanted to be was in that room with this guy. I couldn't sleep. Like your body tells you when you need something. If you're hungry, you'll have hunger pains or growling stomach. That's your body telling you you need to eat. And the same thing post-surgery, I felt like my body was saying, you just need one good night's sleep and this will all be over. And so I was begging them to get out of the hospital. They finally released me. I went home, got one good night's sleep, and I felt I was playing golf within the week. I felt great, which most people don't associate that with brain surgery. Um, It's kind of a scary proposition for most, but my experience, it was not. Let's let's go back to when you you get the news. You got brain cancer. No, it it wasn't cancer at first. It was just a tumor, not cancerous, right? So that probably helps a little bit in terms of your own psyche and your spirit. You know, how, how do you handle this news, which you certainly didn't expect. But what I'm hearing you say, and please clarify if, I, if I'm getting this wrong, is that your confidence that this was going to be, you were going to be okay was really a reflection of the surgeon whose hands you were in. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Like I said, he, he set the tone. Like I do, this is routine for me. Like you go to work and you do your stuff and, you know, to you, it's no big deal. Maybe to your daughter, it's like, how does he handle all these tasks in one day? And it was the same thing with the surgeon. Like, how are you going to do this? And he's like, I do this all the time. Whenever I had that first surgery, it was 2006, I think. And then over the next course of the next two years, my tumor grew back. Hmm. And so the doctor recommended I have a second surgery, which I wanted to do because my first surgery was, quote, unquote, easy for me. My yeah. recovery was fast and it's a, it's a better way of taking out the bulk of the tumor and then deal with the remainder. Um, so the goal of the second surgery was to be more aggressive. It was a different surgeon this time. My original surgeon had left to go to Cedars-Sinai. Um, so I had a different surgeon this time, and she's like, I can get the whole thing. She was really cocky about it. I remember post-surgery, she came into my room. I was like, I think I got like over 95% of it. Um, hmm. The reason they leave portions behind is because where the tumor was positioned – and it was feeding off a blood vessel, and they don't want to get too close to that blood vessel. But the original tumor was large enough. They said it was the size of a small apple, and it was pushing up against my ventricle, which was what was causing the seizures. So they remove it. I stopped having seizures. The second surgery, when the pathology report came back, it showed evidence of malignancy, so it was cancerous. So then I started having conversations about post-operative care, so I did they want to do radiation, so I did seven weeks of radiation. You can't see it now, but it burned off all, most of the hair down here. It'll never regrow. I was just scratching my head one morning, like, that's oh, a really itchy. I looked at the bottom of the shower, and there's just hair. It was just from the radiation where they, they point the beams in. And it cro- this one coming across hit my olfactory nerve, and so the room would smell like pungent chlorine when I did it. It would last for about 10 seconds, and then it would pass. I'm the only one that smelled the chlorine. There was a tech in the room who was like, I don't smell that, which is a really weird thing. And I asked the doctor, the presiding doctor, like, is that, he's like, yeah, that's kind of normal. I was like, isn't there a setting on this machine for like wild blueberry muffins? Like, why does it have to be pungent chlorine? 
the radiation was was really challenging because even though it was only about a 10 minute treatment it would drain you of all your energy so it was it was difficult harder than the surgery i got through it i got through it that was the second surgery yeah and then because i did post-operative care um with the radiation and uh, a drug called temidar which is a chemo drug that you take orally i did that for one year the idea behind the radiation and the chemo was to kill whatever was left behind microscopically that the surgeon couldn't see mm-hmm. and that seemed to work because every four months i would have an mri scan just to see if there was any activity in the brain not much here with me <laughs> no activity whatsoever <laughs> I got, I got 10 years. I got about 10 years. There was no growth, no regrowth or anything. So, and then in the fall of 2017, my oncologist who I've used since the very beginning said, I see something that shouldn't be there. He goes, I think it might be radiation scarring, which doesn't appear quickly. The brain, brain matter doesn't heal the same way. I have a scar on my hand. And when your skin heals, it forms a scar and it kind of bonds together. Your brain doesn't do it that easily. It's It remains irritated for a really long time and then just kind of settles. So he thought it might be scarring from radiation finally forming. We did some additional studies and basically he's like, your tumor is regrowing. Yeah. So I said, can I have surgery? My, my first two were really easy. It got the bulk out really fast and I recovered well. He said, well, this tumor is lower in your brain. It's on the insular, which is below your cortex. So I'll have to put it in front of the tumor board to see if they're willing to take this case on. Mm. Thankfully, they were. So I opted to have a third surgery. And because it was deeper in my brain, when they opened me up, the surgeon, the same surgeon I had had 10 years ago said, she said two things. One, the technology in those 10 years has advanced so much, it's unbelievable since your last surgery. We have better tools to do this surgery more precise location they map they take an mri and then they map the location of the tumor through the mri so in a way she could just look at a screen and do the surgery without even looking at my brain it's so advanced now Um, however when i woke up from the surgery my left side was partially paralyzed i couldn't swallow properly i couldn't open my hand my hand was swollen shut like this I couldn't raise my arm. I had to relearn how to walk. I went into six weeks of re, into a rehab center for physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy. And over the course of the next two years, I just continued to strengthen, you know, my left side. Thankfully, I was right-handed, so you know, my left side being broken wasn't it wasn't that big of a deal, I guess. And over the next two years, I got into a point where I seemed pretty high, highly functional. I still can't type on a keyboard. I lost my ability to play guitar and bass. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have fine motor function. And then I did, had another MRI, and my doctor said, hey, you have, another, you have a tumor. Your tumor is regrown. I think we can do a fourth surgery. And I was very resistant to do a fourth surgery because last time, it's, it taken me two years to regain function in my left side. I don't want to take two steps forward, three steps back. You know, I was in a different, I was at a different place. I'm living in Connecticut. So I was, all my doctors are at Yale, New Haven hospital, which is one of the best cancer centers in the country. And I, different surgeon, she said, based on 
In fact, we've had three of these before. The access to this tumor should be relatively easy. I think it would be safe. She didn't describe it this way. I did, which is like one of those claw machines. Like you, you put a quarter in and it goes down and grabs it. That's kind of how she described it. She's like, basically, we can go straight down in there, grab it, and pull it out. It wasn't underneath, <laughs> left or right, or back or forth. Yeah. So one of those claw games. The claw, the claw. On March 31st, I had the surgery, and here I am. And I didn't lose any functionality on my left side. I didn't gain the ability to move objects with my left hand, which I asked her to do. She didn't give me that, but no, I'll take it. Overall, I'm doing very well considering. So, well, first of all, let me let me say how you know you, you speak to four brain surgeries pretty matter of factly because that's your life. You've gone through this. You know, hearing yep. it for the first time or the second time for me is still is surreal. It's it's like I can't even I can't wrap my mind around it or my brain around the fact that my friend John in the last 15 years has gone through four brain surgeries and he has cancerous tumor, but, but he's still talking to me. You, you guys still got your sense of humor. You're still witty. I mean, your personality doesn't seem to have changed. Can you speak to like, were, were there places where you just thought, why me or what's going on? Or, you know, I have some brothers, I have three siblings and out of us, we grew up as PKs as pastors, kids out of the group. I was the good son. Like, I didn't go sideways, left or right. I didn't smoke, drink, do all the things we're not supposed to do. Even after I grew up, I was never really, a, I didn't drink that much, even when I was of age or smoke or anything like that. I was relatively healthy. I mean, I like barbecue and burgers as much as the next. Like, there was no reason for me to have this. And my neuro-oncologist would tell you, most of the people that have singular brain surgery and tumors like I had, are not the result of, you know, abusing someone's body. He said, he'll tell you most of the people coming in with these things are some of the healthiest people we see. It's kind of an odd thing. I don't, I don't understand why it might have been about my testimony of faith, where growing up, my father, when I was about three or four, uh, he went to a marriage retreat with my mom, and they were on break. And when he came back from the break, coming into this Catholic church, he was struck to his knees. He goes, he'll tell you, in that instance, I knew, he knew that he knew that he knew that God was real. He, he didn't know what was happening, but he just knew. And apparently, a few days later after the retreat, my mom had a similar experience in the bedroom of our house. And they're like, what do we do with this? And my dad, from that point on, gave his life to ministering and spent his whole life, gave his life to God, quite literally, he spent 45 years as a pastor. And that's confusing as a kid because I didn't have that experience. Right. We would have guys come to the church, like these power team guys that could lift all these weights and blow up hot water bottles and make them explode because of their lung capacity. Right. And these guys were like, I used to be strung out on drugs, and now I'm not. And I felt almost like a second-tier Christian because I'd never had that experience. Like, what's my testimony? I grew up, I'm a good kid. And Jesus saved me. What did he save me from? I mean, these are some of the questions I had, right? Like, maybe I should go wayward so I can be saved from something, which I didn't do. Like, oh, when I go to college, I'm gonna, I can do whatever I want. As long as in my parents' home, I'll obey their rules. Then when I go to college, I'll, do, I'll, I'll have some fun. And by that point in my life, I was 20, and I was like, nah, whatever. It's not, that, it's not that interesting to me. So, yeah, I questioned, like, what is this God? And I felt like, to a certain degree, 
it was the start of a testimony that I had of how I maintained faith through all the trials and tribulations I was having. Yeah. To the point where I described those years as my years of Job because out of nowhere I lost my health. And in the process of some of that, I lost my job. Each of these are longer stories, but then I lost my marriage. I started to see a pattern every year with something I was major I was losing. And I didn't want to say, hey, God, I have kids because, you know, in the book of Job, he lost his children. And I, that would have been that would have been a nail in a coffin for me. Yeah. There's a story in the book of Ezra, everyone's favorite prophet book, where <laughs> the Israelites are, are in captivity in Babylon. King Cyrus destroyed the temple, Solomon's temple, decimated it to rubble, and then took the Jews into captivity into Babylon. And they were there for about 75 years. Cyrus dies, and then Nebuchadnezzar is brought into power. And God softens Nebuchadnezzar's heart to say, allow these people to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple so they can worship me. And the idea was, Nebuchadnezzar's like, if I allow them to do this, they'll look on me favorably. He was currying favor from his captives by allowing them to go rebuild their temple. The trouble was, it was the Jews, which were the chosen people of God. Like, you don't mess with that. But he did, and they rebuilt the foundation of the temple. Now, the old people that were originally taken captive were like, we're too old. We're comfortable here in Babylon. We're not going back to Jerusalem to rebuild. The so the young people did, and they said, this is amazing. Look, God is in this, and it's going to be good. And so they go back. Now, you have to imagine, other people are living in Jerusalem where the temple was to be rebuilt. So they, had to, they, they would work these 24-hour shifts, 12 hours they'd be working on the temple, and then they would have to do a guard shift to defend against the occupiers in Jerusalem, the naysayers, like, you shouldn't be building here. This is our house. This is our land now. But somehow, miraculously, they finished laying the foundation of the temple of God. And there's this verse in Ezra 3.11, and it's, I don't have, I'm going to paraphrase it. It says, they had a celebration. So the old timers come to Jerusalem to see the foundation. And they have this celebration. And the verse says, there were tears of joy and there were tears of sorrow, the cacophony of which was so great it could be heard for miles around. And I always felt like that's a really weird verse. Like they're having a celebration. They're having like a birthday party. And there are people there are tears of sorrow. And so I kept saying, what does this mean, God? What does this mean? And he said, Jonathan, I felt like he was speaking to me saying, I'm going to rebuild the foundation in you, Jonathan. You know, because the old timers were sorrowful because they saw this, the foundation. They're like, well, Solomon's temple had porcelain toilets. What are these, porta pots? Like, this is garbage. <laughs> the young people who built it said, no, God was in this. It's great. It doesn't matter. Like, it may not be Solomon's temple. So the old timers were mourning for what they had lost. And the young people were celebrating for what they were about to gain. And yeah. it's that disparity in that verse that's being described. I felt like yeah. I had built a life that was fairly comfortable. I had good health. I had a good job. I had a wife and children. I had own, owned a home. And I think God was saying, like, that's all well and good, Jonathan, but I'm going to wipe this slate clean. And if you keep me in it, it's going to be good. And so I said, okay, I don't know what that means. But I'll take a step towards you, God, and yeah. I want you to bless the not with that. And I'm still trying to figure out what it is he wants me to do. And I don't define myself based on his brain surgeries. I think there's a misperception of the complexity and the dangers around brain surgery. 
or in modern times, it's become routine and normal and safe. Well, let me, let me back up a little bit. So, you know, this whole concept of God's in it in spite of the trials and tribulations, that's pretty easy for people to wrap their minds around. But the idea that God himself would say, let's wipe the slate clean, which means a loss of job, a brain surgery, family implodes. Some people yep. will wonder, does that mean that a loving God did that to you? Is that what you're saying? Are you, or is, is there another way to look at what has happened to you and how God has, has weaved his story into yours and vice versa? Yeah, I, theologically, I don't know how to justify my story there, to be honest with you. I don't know how to reconcile it to, because I don't. I'm not a deist. Where deists believe God created the world and then left, and He doesn't interact with us at all. I'm not a deist. I believe God is operating in us and around us, whether we choose to see it or not. So, I think my circumstances were just normal circumstances, and then if I choose to see how God is interacting within that, I think it it helps strengthen your faith and helps you get through it. And there were times where I. I hope the neurosurgeon nicks my blood vessel and I die on the table because especially after my third one, I was like, I, I don't know if I, I want to do a fourth surgery again because the last one was pretty rough. So I don't know that God caused this to happen. I'm not that righteous of a man like Job, but I had to choose. I had to make the decision to choose whether I saw God in it or not. And in a sense, that becomes my testimony. When you choose to see God in your circumstances, He'll help you. It's easier for him to help you get through it. Or if you say, God, why are you doing this to me? And blame him. It's going to be harder for you to rely on him to pull you through. And so that, I think that's my answer to what you're saying. No, I, I agree completely. So I, you know, I've gone through my own trauma, which we haven't really talked about and won't in this particular broadcast. But you're right. There's that uh, choice. Choice is the big deal here. When trauma happens, inevitably it does because we live in a broken world then the choice is, am I going through this with God or am I going to curse God and die, to, to use the Job metaphor, right? And some of his friends, yeah. some of his closest friends said, man, why don't you just curse God and die because he's obviously taken out some sort of vendetta against you. And I, and I don't know the answer. I don't know all the theology. I've wrestled with this whole idea myself. But I, but I do think there's something very rich and important to think about, to wrestle with, uh, and to own that when circumstances happen, whether it's, happenstance it's you know just mother earth angry or it's you know at the hands of some evil person with ill intent uh god is there no matter what the, the cause is and then you can choose to have him be with you through all the, the pain and carry you through or you like you said curse and die and honestly this last round this fourth one it was really hard to see god in the midst of it because it's the fourth one. And there's this principle in science called the principle of diminishing returns. The idea is this. If you put 100 light bulbs in a room and turn them all on, and then you add one more, will the room get brighter? At some point, it won't get any brighter. There's a point of diminishing returns. The question for me was, how many brain surgeries do you need to say you've had that has a point of diminishing returns? And I think the answer is one. Because people are yeah. like, what, you have brain surgery? Like, the fact that I've had four is almost inconsequential at this point. It's like just having had one is significant to most people. And it comes back to that, what I said earlier, that there's a perception of brain surgery. I'm not saying it's not dangerous and because the brain is kind of the, the wild west of unknown medical 
they still don't know how to know a lot about how things work. You know, they touch this, my arm just goes crazy. Like when you dissect a frog in high school and you could touch a particular nerve and it kind of kicks. But I think that misperception of, you know, surgical technique, I mean, I think modern science is tremendous. And I think God has blessed people with certain knowledge and discovery in order to allow us to facilitate care and better healing. I've had some people say, like, well, now we can pray and it'll be healed, and I believe God can heal me. But at the same time, I have options that I can choose from, and I feel God can bless those hands to help cure us. Our bodies are remarkable. Like, you know, he needed us in our mother's womb. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. I think science, science and engineers should look at our human bodies because they are self-healing mechanisms. I think there's something to that. So no matter what the doctor told me, it's my, my wound is healing and my mental capacity is improving. So thankfully I've had the aid of knowledge, even though might not have gotten it from the tree of Eden, but there is a lot of knowledge and um, understanding of how these things interact. And so doctors are able to help us out. I think if someone is facing something like this, there's two things. I think there should be confidence in the medical community, unless you're going to Billy Bob's brain surgery. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, if you're going to a reputable place, you pro most likely, I would say 85% confident, you have competent people working on you who know what they're doing. And that's a blessing, I think, that God has given us in modern age. And the second thing I'd say is there's always someone who's done this before that you can talk to if you're nervous. I currently have a friend who has a cyst on his pineal gland. And the pineal gland is like in the center of your brain. They have this rod that they put in the back of your head that pushes brain matter aside and gets to the pineal nerve. And then endoscopically, they have a camera and they can resect the cyst that way with just a pinhole in the back of your head. So there's, there's unbelievable technique out there for positive outcomes to anything related that related to your brain or your body in general. Yeah. Some of that knowledge is just talking to other people. I got a call from this guy. I hadn't heard from him in 15 years. He called me up on the phone. He said, my ex-wife said to call you because you have had these surgeries. And, you know, he was a hypochondriac and I, I wasn't able to talk him off the ledge to have the surgery, but he was, he was really getting messed up. He was losing his balance, his vertigo. He had vertigo and seizures and, he really needed yeah. the surgery. I was scared of it. And I was like, it's really the odds are in your favor to have it. So much good stuff in here that can be very helpful, John. And one is that oftentimes the thing that we fear the most is the thing that can help us the most, right? Uh, yeah. Just like the hypochondriac you were talking about, the, the, the thing that could bring him relief from his uh, pain is the thing that he, he's afraid of. I would like to continue this discussion for uh, for people who are out there facing whatever it is. Some of them, it will be cancer. <clears throat> Some of it will be brain tumors, but others just facing scary odds, especially medical conditions, and they've never gone through it before. That's one of the scariest things is you don't know what you don't know. And so your uh, brain and your psyche and your spirit fill up all the questions with what you, what you most fear, generally. <clears throat> I've even heard that that's a, there's a scientific name for that. It's the predisposition towards negativity or a negativity bias you know back when in the caveman days when in the early days of humanity 
this negativity bias is what kept us alive because you never knew if there was a saber-toothed tiger around the corner, so you were on, on high alert all the time, right? Thankfully, I don't have to worry about saber-toothed tiger being out in the driveway here, you know? Like, <laughs> I have to worry about traffic accidents getting to the hospital. I mean, yeah. we're, we're topping the food chain by a mile, right? So That's true. What I hear you saying is, one, is you understand the process and how great water medicine is, so you can put some confidence in that. But two, as you've already alluded to, you're so grateful that here you are in 2021, facing your, you know, just recovering from your fourth brain surgery, whereas if you'd had that exact same condition 50 years ago or 100 years ago, the odds of survival would have been way against your favor, right? Yeah. My father is like a Civil War buff, and he kind of got me interested in American history, and I was reading presidential biographies in chronological order. And I got to Lincoln, and there's not a book about Lincoln that's less than 7,000 pages. Like, so I kind of got gummed up at Lincoln. And so when I found out about the, you know, my need for surgery and the brain stuff, I decided to do a little bit of research, the chronological history of surgery. And I kind of started in the 1600s, was kind of the earliest I could find. Before that, it was Hippocrates in like ancient Greek and Roman times that held sway. He had they have four humors of the body, and that was the prevailing medical knowledge even up to the 1600s. In the late 1600s, you start to see the scientific revolution and the Enlightenment come into play. And you had guys that are like, we got to do better here. And some of the stuff, they, st they started body snatching. And this is happening in, in the UK and in Britain, where they like if they hung a prisoner, the medical community was allowed to take the body. But you'd have all these surgeons show up all wanting this one body. You know, there was a surgeon who basically started the black market for stealing cadavers. So they would hinge the coffins on one end, and they would, they would bury the coffins at an angle. And then the guys would come dig up. They would open the hatch on the one side and pull the body out and then bring it to the surgeon, and he would pay for it. But he learned about placement of organs in the body and was able to further science that way. That led into the 1700s, and guys continued to do this. Up to this point, though, surgery was mainly excluded to extremities because once they, because of infection, once they opened the body up, they really didn't know what they were looking at and what was happening. There were a lot of people before us that died as experimentation to learn. And then the 1800s, my, one of my favorite stories is there was a dentist who had a drug party at his house, ether frolic at his house, and people were getting high on ether. And he noticed they were bumping into the corners of his furniture and not complaining of the pain. And somehow in his drug-induced haze, he put two and two together. He was a dentist. And so he's like, there's something about this ether that makes people numb to pain. So he did in a surgical auditorium he did a live tooth extraction with a guy that was high on ether and they pulled this tooth and the guy didn't experience pain and he tried to name it something else like dether or deoxin or something like that because back in the day if you could get your name associated with a drug or a surgical technique that was how you would stake your claim in medicine so this guy was trying to sell ether as something else but the secret was too great and so it got out, and that became kind of the first anesthesia that people would use to do surgery, te surgical technique. And this is also what late 1800s and the early 1900s, we saw a guy named Harvey Cushing come on the scene. And he was a, he was a doctor that 
focused on the brain. And he's the father of modern neurosurgery. And incidentally, he thought the um, pituitary gland controlled everything in the brain. And so he developed the entire practice of endocrinology as what he thought was right and proper for, for understanding the brain, only to go back on it to say that that's only one aspect of the brain. And then he opened that up to other, he found tumors. He really helped with two things. The first is at this stage of world history, the leading medical knowledge and practice was in Europe. Harvey Cushing, with his technique, his understanding, and his practices, brought the modern understanding of surgical technique to the United States. So it shifted from Europe, because he went over to Europe and they're like still cutting people open without any ether or anesthesia, and still using dirty medical instruments that they, they, they would cut cadavers up. Oh, look at this. And then they'd clear the table and then have a live patient and use the same instruments. So okay. hygiene was a huge issue. Cushing also tracked his patients, which sounds nuts that you wouldn't like, hey, just did surgery on this guy and he survived. Let's see how he is two years from now. Cushing had a staff that he paid for out of his personal income to basically track people to see how they were doing. And there's a story where he did 10 surgeries on one, 10 brain surgeries on one guy because he kept having uh, seizures and whatnot. So he kept opening them up. And back then we didn't have MRIs. So it was kind of blind experimental surgery. How those people said yes to that, I don't, I don't know. Just more <laughs> but, ether. <laughs> then post 1920s, you start getting into psychotropic drugs. And that's where anesthesia came in and whatnot. And so the progress in the 1900s in the United States really kind of lands where we are today with a combination of we can knock you out, plus we, we know what we're looking at when we go inside with the MRI and CAT scans. That's three hundred years in three minutes, by the way. I feel like I need so to that's, pay of course. That's 3,000 pages of reading in three minutes. There you go. Thank you very much. I just got the Cliff's notes. I got the John's notes. I appreciate that. Oftentimes, uh, when circumstances are really hard, especially physical, we, we do ask the question, why me? You know, and there's not really a great answer to that. Some people say, why not me, right? And, but what I hear you saying is, I'm just grateful it wasn't me 50, 20, 50 100 years ago, 400 yeah. years ago, because if I wouldn't be here. Be if it's yeah. going to be me, now is the time to do it. Now is the time. Thankfully, right now, I'm not working, and I have a place to stay with free rent. So if there's ever a person that can go through what they're going to put me through, it's me because I have the ability to stay in bed all day. I've been questioning God why I haven't gotten a job in two years. Uh, it was like, this can't be the reason, is it? Mm -hmm. So we'll see. We'll see. I'll probably be in this clinical trial for six months, the goal of which is to prevent the growth of the tumor. They've removed the majority of it through surgery and whatever is remaining in there. They hope to prevent its growth with this. And my body has the type of chemo I've done in the past was this Temidar and my tumors and my body has responded well to it. So we're very hopeful that we can prevent growth and that'll last for quite a while. Well, I sure hope so too, John. I, I've missed chatting with you. You're, you're a great guy, good man, a good friend. You know, my heart goes out for all that you've been through and all the losses that you've endured. And yet you have maintained your faith. You have clung to God in the midst of uh, the pain and the trial, which I think is remarkable and commendable and inspiring. Honesty, 
maintaining faith has not been easy. I've been mad at God and just, you know, I've been through that too. Those, that cycle of like, why? I don't understand this. You know, I have children and, uh, you know, want to be around for them. And right now it looks like that's going to happen. So it's good. That's all you can really hold on to because what's happening up here medically or physically, I can't control. So it's the old serenity prayer, right? Like, Lord, help me to control the things I can and know the difference between those things I can't. I can't control what's happening up here. There's nothing I can really do except follow what the doctors know to be best. So, God, give me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference, right? One of my all-time favorite prayers. This has been remarkably great on many levels for me personally as your friend, and uh, hopefully this will be an encouragement to those who are out there facing something similar in your own life. You know, when you, you said that story from the Old Testament about the party where the old people were grieving what they lost and the young people were celebrating with a new thing, I think it's, that's a great metaphor for that, that both are true. Uh, this is kind of this theme in my life that we, we face a lot of things and change and decisions with it in either or mentality. It has to be right or wrong, black or white, you know, left or right. But God's got a bigger plan. It's both and. So even in your situation, you've had to grieve a lot of loss in your life. And yes. yet you can celebrate that you're alive, that you've got a good surgery and good medicine and all that kind of stuff. Well, my, my time is up. I'm going to say goodbye. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. and Just Thanks for having me. If anybody has any questions, let me know. You know, direct them my way, Joe. I'm happy to talk to people that are maybe going through something similar and don't know how to respond. If I can be some kind of voice of hope in that, I'm happy to do that. Awesome. All right, so until next time, uh, keep the faith. If this episode was beneficial to you, be sure to pay it forward, sharing it with others who may need a boost as well. Until next time, dream big, start small, act now. Thank you for tuning in.